the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly view on the stories shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. On this week's podcast, we've travelled to Italy to talk to a Greek ship owner about why the well-publicised woes of the German shipping industry have made it harder for companies from other nations to secure finance. But before we navigate our way through that international conundrum, we're going to be tackling the minor issue of global warming. You would have thought that having signed off a historic agreement in April to halve greenhouse gas emissions from shipping by 2050, that the International Maritime Organization would be doubling down on climate change measures when its environmental committee meeting starts in London next week. Well, it's certainly on the agenda, but if anything, it's acid rain and respiratory disease that's still driving the agenda over and above global warming right now. For an industry staring down the barrel of the 2020 starting pistol, It's perhaps a little worrying that next week's MEPC meeting is still likely to be dominated by discussion about the sulphur cap and how to enforce it. Joining me to take a look forward to next week's discussions and what's on the IMO's agenda for the next few years is our regulatory expert and part-time resident of Albert Embankment, Anastasios Adamopoulos. Anastas, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Richard. Now, you're going to be camping out at the IMO's HQ yet again next week for some... uh, environmental discussions. It's the uh, Social of the Season, the uh, Marine Environmental Protection Committee. But what's uh, what's on the agenda this week? Are we Is it going to be dominated by 2020 still, or uh, is it going to be room for some uh, actual discussion about how we're going to um, change the fuel requirements of an entire industry by 2050? No, yeah, I think you got it right in the uh, introduction there. This was supposed to be a meeting very much about greenhouse gas emissions, but uh, two years after its adoption, it's still the sulfur cap that's going to dominate. Um, there are effectively two main issues around that that need to be discussed. Uh, the first is a proposal that's been highly controversial since it was revealed last month by leading flag states and associations uh, to introduce what they called an experience building phase uh, post-2020, during which the IMO and member states would collect and analyze data surrounding the sulfur cap and potentially make any changes they need to. Um, That proposal has gotten a lot of backlash from the industry, which we've covered uh, a lot of as well. So, and speaking with delegates ahead of next week, they expect that to be by far the most uh, controversial, unpredictable discussion of that whole week. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's let's uh, call a spade a spade. I mean, you know, in terms of IMO language, there's all manner of technical, uh, you know, interpretations of how you describe the experience building phase. But depending on which side of the fence you sit on, this is effectively either a grace period in terms of enforcement or a pragmatic response to uh, an expected raft of, of quality and availability issues in terms of fuel. Either way, it's not looking like a particularly uh, easy ride in from the 1st of January for shipping. No, it's not. And uh, I think that whatever happens next week, um, a lot of this is going to be determined in hindsight. Because Mm. if we do come across these problems post-2020, these associations of flag states are definitely going to come out and say, we told you so. Mm. Um, And to be perfectly honest, I don't expect, even if the MAPC rejects the experience building phase as such, I don't expect it will completely ignore the the concerns of the the co-sponsors. I think there will be a text coming out of some sort, whether it be a circular or a guidance, uh, but I don't think, I wouldn't expect there's going to be a formalized data collection period. It might be something more informal advising states to gather information, uh, to gather data in the first 
year or so of the cap to help uh, build knowledge around it. But I don't. I can't see it being anything more structured. And I think the IMO will certainly make every uh, possible effort to reiterate. You know, there is no delay in the implementation date. There is no transitional period. Mm-hmm. These things uh, are, are set in stone, and uh, anything around uh, anything else is just advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, IMO has been, uh, and, and to be fair, most players have been pretty categorical. Yeah. Twenty twenty means yeah. twenty twenty. There is no going back on this, and, and and nobody suggesting otherwise. But you know, there is realistically going to be an interesting week of discussion about what that looks like on the water because you know, we all know that implementing international regulation is not as simple as turning a switch on. You are going to have uh, degrees of enforcement, degrees of uh, uh, compliance. Um, we all know there are going to be issues. It's a question of whether this is a, a short bump and, and then things are ready or whether this is going to be something a little bit more substantial. Um, I think what you've seen in the run-up to uh, this week's MEPC meeting, while nobody's expecting much in the way of tangible agreements, there's been a lot of political heat. And you've already mentioned that you know both the associations and the member states have been pretty vocal in the run-up to this MEPC. Mm. The reality is, even within the membership of those bodies, you've got a divided membership. You've got mm. a lot of different opinions. You, this is a political hot potato. And commercially speaking, depending on which side of the line you fall on, um, there's a lot of money at stake in terms of how the interpretation on compliance go this week, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think that uh, is going to be a big part of the fallout of all this because, you know, like you said, these are big flag states and big associations. So by extent, they have big members. A lot of these big members have already spent a lot of money Mm. planning for the cap. So whether that be scrubbers or... Uh, negotiations with uh, fuel providers so I'm certain and we've heard you know we've heard members of some of these associations and flag states tell us that they're not happy with how this was handled yeah so it's going to be interesting to see if that results in any membership losses flag uh, chain flag switches Um, you know the fallout here could be pretty big yeah well, yes, much like the debate at hand, uh, this question of whether the um, threats, rumours and speculation we've been hearing uh, off the record are actually going to turn into um, actual results or, or just more hot air. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. keep a watching eye on that one. But yeah, it's, uh, it's fair to say that behind the scenes there's uh, a few um, heated words being had with um, certain membership associations. Yeah, and I, I think you know the other thing to consider for next week is that unless something dramatic happens... The MEPC is going to adopt this carriage ban on non-compliant fuels, yeah, uh, which would come into effect presumably March first, twenty twenty, just because of the way IMO regulation works. But what that means is that any scrubber, any vessel that doesn't have scrubbers, mm-hmm. uh, cannot be having, uh, cannot sorry, cannot be carrying HFO for use after that date. Mm-hmm. So that is the first sort of de facto enforcement tool mm-hmm. that um, the industry has as its. Which, which kicks in three months after the deadline. Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 yeah, it's something. Um, and unless something dramatic happens, uh, I don't see it not being ratified next yeah. week. Okay. I mean, we mentioned greenhouse gases somewhat glibly at the opening. Mm-hmm. I mean, it will be discussed clearly. Uh, yes, and it will. already before the MEPC meeting, as is now pretty much standard practice, they've had a pre meeting meeting. Um, yep. Just because they can't fit in everything in the actual uh, MEPC meetings anymore, that is the sort of the nature of the beast these days. 
we've we've seen some debate over it. I mean, we're not quite at the stage yet that we're talking about the nitty gritty of things like market based measures or, or, or anything even to do with what the measures are going to start looking like. But we are seeing a bit of development in terms of um, how they're going to be tackling these things. What's what's the feeling there? Right. So I think, like you said, uh, there was a working group this week. Regulators met uh, in preparation for MEPC next week. Uh, and while they pretty much, from what we understand, all agreed on how to tackle the development of short-term measures, there were some, some issues with uh, setting strong deadlines for the reduction of, uh, of emissions. So they agreed they're going to do this uh, by dividing you know, measures into three groups. So those are measures that already exist and can be strengthened, those that don't exist and require data analysis, and, there's a, and those that don't exist uh, and don't require data analysis, such as R&D and things like that. Yeah. Uh, where, the, where the dispute was, and it was ultimately a compromise in writing, which is very technical, um, but the, the dispute was that some countries wanted in writing that any short-term emissions reductions be achieved before 2023. Now, we understand that a host of countries, uh, including, and I think led by developing countries, big developing countries, um, oppose that specific reference, claiming that there are way too many measures uh, to go through to actually do that before 2023. Yeah. Uh, so we end up with this sort of open-ended deadline that urges for emission reductions before 2023, but doesn't actually impose a hard deadline. This is what worries me. I mean, you know, we are sat here in uh, 2018 discussing the final details of a piece of legislation that was agreed several years ago and is going to hit the water on the 1st of January 2020. And yet when it comes to discussing carbon reduction, which is by any measure a far more um, seismic shift for the industry to deal with, we're already putting back on some of the, uh, you know, the dates and 2023 looks unachievable. I mean, I'm, I'm being overly simplistic here, but, you know, I think if you look at the carbon reduction question versus the sulfur reduction, 2050 looks like a, a, a sort of a far more um, difficult transition for the industry to make. I mean, 2020 is a, a minor administrative blip compared to yeah. that. Yeah, you're right. And the thing is that in the follow-up to the April uh, decision, a lot of the effort that's going to be made in these first few years, and you could see that in this meeting, is about keeping the balance in this very fragile political alliance that's developed in the international community. You know, don't forget these were very contested negotiations in mm -hmm. April, and that hasn't just been you know swept under the rug because we managed to get an agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, that is still there, and those issues will necessarily have to be addressed at some point. It's just that they don't want to do that right now without at least getting some kind of template on how to move forward. The difficult part starts now. That, that's, you know, the, cel the celebrations are over. We're past that. Um, implementing all of this is going to be extremely hard and politics are going to dominate uh, over technical considerations at some point. Again. Well, we uh, wait uh, to see the outcome of next week's MEPC meeting. Uh, Anastasios, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Richard. David Osler has been in Naples this week moderating a panel discussion at the Shipping and Law Conference that featured a number of leading Italian and Greek ship owners. Among them was former UGS president John Lyris, who cheekily inverted the stereotype of profligate southern European borrowers, causing problems for abstemious northern countries and blasted the Germans for making life harder for everyone else. John, 
I loved your comments in the conference this morning, blaming Germans for messing up the shipping industry financially and ruining it for everybody else. That must have felt a good thing to say as a Greek. Well, I didn't actually blame the Germans. I did say that uh, the, uh, in the context of the difficulty of, of, of obtaining ship financing in Europe these days, um, the German situation didn't help. And um, obviously, uh, it's also known that some of the German banks were very big finances to our industry as well, to the Greek industry and to nationalities other than German. So the fact that they both uh, ran into trouble with their portfolios um, meant that um, everybody who was on their loan books was affected and also that uh, they are much less keen to continue to um, finance the business and this business in particular. So um, that was the context that I mentioned the difficulty in uh, financing uh, ships in Europe these days and also I mentioned the Ball Convention um, which uh, does not recognize enough the kind of model that um, uh, Greek shipping is uh, famous for, if I can put it that way, which is the proprietary uh, family business, um, because there your track record is not recognized. I mean, the BAL um, uh, criteria are such that shipping is labeled as a high-risk industry, and uh, it's also um, an asset-financed uh, uh, industry, which means that, um, and also an asset that's floating, etc., so it's... Uh, considered even more dangerous than, for instance, an office building or something, which is right to a certain extent. But the track record in both cases is ignored completely. So uh, my company is fourth generation. Now I am fourth generation in this business. And it counts for nothing. And also, um, although a floating um, asset like a ship, especially if it's carrying oil, uh, does pose uh, more risks than an office building, uh, you should be looking at the track record rather than looking at the um, theoretical yeah, or potential but, uh, yeah, dangers. Obviously, obviously, you're a well-known industry veteran, but if you were a 25-year-old son who just inherited a father's company, um, should a banker cut those kind of guys any additional slack? Well, you know, the, um, uh, our industry after the Second World War has uh, grown and was financed uh, almost exclusively by commercial bank financing. So that's why we're more concerned than perhaps other companies like the Musks of this world or these sort of big um, cruise companies that are quoted, etc., and can raise money on the capital markets. I mean, for a proprietary uh, shipping business, commercial banks have been the finances, or what used to be called yard credit, which I think still exists in the Far East. But I remember building in the UK uh, with our family in the uh, 60s and 70s with ECGD financing, which was export credit uh, financing. And that was one of the ways that you could uh, finance ships because even commercial banks weren't, um, at that time, experienced enough to uh, get involved. Now, what's happened since is that a lot of them got uh, too experienced or perhaps thought they were too experienced and then they did some uh, bad uh, loans and a lot of them have left, you know, I mean, Royal Bank of Scotland is a case in point. Um, so um, a lot of uh, the, the Americans have completely disappeared and they were very big players in the 70s and 80s, Citicorp and um, uh, Chase Manhattan, which now no longer exists and so on. 
So um, I believe that um, there are uh, a lot of the professionals, in fact, of these banks were Greek and they came to work yeah. in the Greek banks. And the Greek banks are not sufficient. This is why we have a, an issue now that we, uh, the Greek banks are very willing to lend to the sector because they know it very well and they know the names and they know the track record, as I said. But uh, we, they can't um, deal with the capacity. So you're missing the days of Lambros Varnavides and the Piraeus branch of RBS? Well, we are. And uh, on the other hand, we're sort of uh, cognizant of the fact that um, uh, banks have become these huge corporations too. Uh, which uh, wasn't the case. I mean, I remember the um, St. Mary Axe uh, manager who was responsible for shipping being there for 25 years, you know, until he retired. So this kind of continuity is something that we are missing and which we don't find anymore, and it's unlikely that we are, you know, going to find it in the future. So this is where things like the Baal Convention become much more important because if the blueprint, if you like, for our sector is wrong or it's missing... Uh, an aspect like track record and the name, if you like, lending, which is what shipping is in the bulk sector at least, then you're, you, you know, you, what are your alternatives? And that's why a lot of people are going to the Far East. Okay, John Lawrence, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. David. Thank you.